Well, good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today's date is August 6, 2023. And the title of today's message is Effective Yield. Effective Yield. Amen. We're telling you up front that today will be a holy mixture of royal transparency, foundational teaching, and practical preaching that will move all of us to action. Whether a man, woman, or child in this room, all will be moved. In light of this, we're telling you, sharpen your minds, ready your spirits. Our time together will stretch your capacity by necessity. All of this is to the end of seeing you presented as mature in Christ. This body has been blessed with new insight into passages like Psalm 101, featuring the Davidic Charter. And Psalm 73, that illuminated the sickness in the heart of Asaph. This body has heard rousing messages that were aimed at revitalizing the God-given call to masculinity for the men of this house. Saints, we want to tell you that today we're going to bring all of these concepts into focus and drive at the actual aim of our faith. Namely, that we would be like God as imitators of him, or said another way, like him in the fullness of his character, as Jesus is the bodily indwelling of Adonai's character. To accomplish this task, it's going to require something of us. It will require us to set out on a journey, not only in the content of today's message, but in a lifetime pursuit of corporate adherence to our growing knowledge of the character of God as it relates to our daily thoughts, our motives, and our interactions with one another. So as we set out on this journey, it's appropriate that we do three things. First, that we read a passage. Second, that we give you some biblical definitions. And then third, that we pray together. We are going to start by reading from Ephesians chapter 1. Because in that chapter, Paul has already outlined the kind of prayer and transformation that we are in desperate search of today. And by God, we will find it together. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 16 says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, yeah. may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. We're not going to linger here long because we have several earth-shaking things to get to with you. With that said, you must have in your frame of mind that this was written to the mighty church of Ephesus. The church that took on the archons and won. Paul's unceasing prayer is that they may receive from the Father a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. The goal of the Christian faith is that we become like the author of our faith. That's a good word. To be given a divine spirit of wisdom, divine revelation, and knowledge of the divine one is not merely a data drop about God to be stored in the mind alone. Ephesus was a well-educated church, both in the scriptures and the application of the power of God. 
Paul was praying for something more. He was praying that they might possess the truth of who God is and that it would cause an increasing likeness between them as sons of God and the Father. So let's continue with Paul's prayer in light of what you just heard. Keep that in mind as we continue in verse 18 together. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Come on. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Man, Paul's language is so impressively beautiful. And it's no wonder because as inspired by the spirit of Jesus... He is describing the glory that is found in our King. So that you don't get lost in the beauty of the statements and fail to connect the main point. We're going to take these verses in two parts and we're going to start with the following slide with you. The hope to which you are called. We want to hone in on verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now connect that with verses 22 through 23 about the hope to which he's called you. Gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The hope is that as his body, we would be completely filled with him. We're talking all in all, church. Let's say it again. The hope of the gospel is that we would have Christ as our head in everything and as his body be permeated with him all in all. Or said another way, through and through, all the way through, having nothing in us that is not in the perfect image of him. You've already heard that this was the expressed intention of God from the very beginning. Genesis 1.26 actually says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Oh, you guys starting to put the dots together now? And let them have dominion. Then in the next verse, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. On a similar note, at the end of the canon in Revelation 21.7, it said that the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Meaning that the expressed intention of our existence will be brought into perfect sonship and unity 
with the Father through Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God. Revelation 22 goes on to say in verses 3 through 4, no longer will there be anything accursed. Man, I'm looking forward to that day. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The biblical account itself presents a process or journey that we are intended to walk from Genesis to Revelation. We were made with a measure of the divine image of God that was quickly corrupted by our sin in the garden. Now, we were also born again with a measure of, a, of the divine nature of God that in some respects is constantly at war with another measure that is within our very members. Yeah. Two things waging war. This journey from Genesis to Revelation, it is the walk of a bride or the body of Christ that experiences the crucifying path that our Messiah did, arriving at a place of total likeness and unity with the father of all saints this is why paul is praying that we would gain a spirit of wisdom of revelation and divine knowledge our hope is in becoming all in all with christ which is the culmination of the deposit he gave us in our regeneration and baptism from on high this is, of course, most fully realized in the resurrection of our bodies from the dead in an uncorrupted state. But nevertheless, it is a journey that we must be on daily, pursuing the hope that we are called to. Amen. All right, you guys say it's a journey. It's a journey that we are called to. That we, are called we told you that we were going to take Ephesians 1 in two parts so that we did not miss these connections. Paul not only describes the hope that we have, he also describes the one that we have our hope in. Let's look at our next slide. The one our hope is in. These are the attributes of that one. Immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. That power is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. The one who we are to become like, has immeasurable greatness. He has power. He is seated at the right hand in the heavens. He is above all rule, authority, and dominion. His name or his character, which means his body of works, his resume, is above every name, and he is head over all. Amen. You have already seen that he created male and female to be in his likeness. Alright, somebody say this with me. Male and female. Male and female. To be like him. Ladies, I want you to listen today. We're getting everyone in the room, no matter what your gender or age is, because we are all created in the image of God to be in his likeness. 
When we're thinking about both male and female in his likeness, it stands to reason then that as Paul prayed, the eyes of our hearts must be enlightened to understand his likeness and to be able to imitate it. His likeness is the fullest manifestation of all power and goodness at once. Come on. He is intrinsically all virtue, all uprightness, and all that the created world is intended to reflect in a perfect state. My brother is describing the image that you are called to. That's right. We hope that you're beginning to grasp that with us this morning. That is the image to which you are called. You know what? That brings us to our first biblical definition on our next slide. The omnipotence of God. Omnipotence is exclusively an attribute of God. And it is essential to the perfection of his being. It is declared in such scriptures as the following. You can highlight Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 3, Psalm 62. Man, they're countless. Ephesians 3, Revelation 19 speak about the omnipotence of God. By ascribing to God absolute power, it is not meant that God is free from all the restraints of reason and morality, as some have taught, but that he is able to do everything that is in harmony with his wise and holy and perfect nature. You can see those scriptures there. The infinite power of God is set before us in the scriptures in connection with his work of creation. Genesis 1.1, obviously in Romans 1.20. His work of upholding the world in Hebrews 1.3. The redemption of mankind in Luke 1 and Ephesians 1.19, which we just walked through. Our God is altogether powerful and he is also altogether good. He is... At one time. Say at one time. One time. He's at one time the perfect embodiment of compassion, wrath, patience, zeal, mercy, justice, and kindness at one time. The task of describing the fullness of his character is an impossibility. Save the fact that he divinely recorded the truth of who he is through the entirety of the book that you hold right now. At times you will see one attribute expressed more strongly than at other times, but he, in perfect harmony with himself, embodies all of these qualities, all of the time, and much more than just the seven that we just listed. From the example in the word and the empowerment of his spirit, we learn how to image these qualities of the omnipotent God in the appropriate times and the appropriate places. You know, this draws to mind a few seemingly insurmountable problems. The first being that we do not possess all of these qualities all of the time. Is that true? I do not always in wrath Remember mercy. Can anyone relate to that? Yes. In kindness, I do not always hold perfect justice. Aye. Can you see the other side of that? Yeah. The second is that 
While we can all intellectually agree with the statements about God that are featured on our slide, our actual thoughts about God and our practice as his imagers, they do not conform to the truth of who he actually is. That brings us to our second biblical definition. You see on the slide, anthropomorphic versus theomorphic. Anthropomorphic, as it relates to our view of God, is to ascribe or project human qualities, characteristics, weaknesses, or failings to the conception of the divine nature of God. Theomorphic, as it relates to our view of God, is to understand all virtues, virtuous qualities, and their varying forms found in humanity and creation as stemming from God who is the author of all that is good and virtuous in the world. So an example that will help you understand these definitions is the depiction in Exodus 15 of God, the warrior, that was covered last Sunday. An anthropomorphic view of God says that God is like John Wick or another Hollywood warrior. This is projecting our view of what a warrior is on God. To make a statement like that, is not only improper wording, it is more importantly a serious failing in our understanding that in other applications leads to serious error. So to restate and understand Exodus 15 in a correct theomorphic viewpoint, as the pastors pointed out last Sunday, would be that God is the embodiment of a holy warrior. And to the extent that John Wick or any other real warrior Images God's behavior, that behavior is then godly or godlike. The application would be, then be, that to the extent we image God as warriors, we are behaving like God or in a godly fashion. Are you guys picking up on this subtle difference in speech? To say God is loving and then understand how loving he is by your own definition and experience of love is anthropomorphic. You see, this subtle difference in our speech and thoughts has very powerful ramifications. Our king is omnipotent, embodying all power, virtue, and goodness at all times. And we are called to be like him. He does not simply possess virtue as a quality that could come and go. He is the literal definition of all things virtuous. He is in and of himself intrinsically virtuous. Meaning virtue is derived from his character and body of works as recorded in his word. However, our leftover anthropomorphic projections of who God is cause us to misunderstand him and misrepresent him completely as well as to misunderstand what our lives should look like as his imagers. This sinful anthropomorphic view of God shows its ugly head in all of the areas that we have subtly reshaped our king within the domain of our own minds, based upon our idea of what is good. We are going to consider two qualities that Adonai perfectly embodies at the same time, but that are shocking. Say shocking. Shocking. These attributes are shocking 
to the modern Christian with an anthropomorphic view of God, including those in this room. We're going to take our first example on our next slide. Look at this compassion as embodied in God. Jeremiah 12, 15 says, And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. You can see Old Testament 73:55 there, racham. That is the base word for compassion in Jeremiah 12. Look at the four lines underneath it. These are some of the variants of Raham. The first one, you can see that definition is womb or womb-like. The second one, tender mercy. Third is compassionate. And the fourth could even speak of a compassionate woman. This root refers to deep love, usually of a superior for an inferior. It's rooted in some natural bond. As you guys can clearly see on the slide, the word for Adonai's compassion is also used to mean womb or womb-like. What is being conveyed by scripture is easily muddied. It's muddled and perverted by an anthropomorphic view of God. God is the embodiment of compassion. And as that quality of compassion is used to describe his people, the word becomes associated with the most compassionate areas of Adonai's creation. Pause for just a moment. Do you guys understand this? If you're looking at God through anthropomorphic eyes, that's perverted with this word. If you're understanding that all compassion comes from God and then is exemplified in areas of the creation, then that's beautiful imagery. So among humanity, those most known for embodying God's divine quality of compassion are women with their offspring. What better example could you see? The concept is that women who rightly apply God's attribute of compassion, well, they are acting in a godly way. They're being godlike. As shocking as it may be for some of you to realize that a divine attribute of God is associated with a, with a woman's womb, in the proper theomorphic view, it is very easily understood. God is where all compassion stems from. And when women rightly image that compassion, they are imaging God on the earth. This is not to say that men are not called to image the exact same quality, men. It's just that women are scripturally known for being better at it than us men are. It's true. In fact, most of you will tend to think that this is solely a feminine trait. But this view is wrong. It is a wrong anthropomorphic view. This is a quality of Adonai. And we as his people were created male and female in his likeness to image his qualities, who he is. Both men and women are designed to image God in all of his qualities, but we were designed to work together to form a more complete picture of who he is. Say, praise God for my spouse. Praise God for my spouse. The strengths of our unified marriages are required to complete the image together. All right, are y'all awake? Yeah. Somebody say that's sweet. Oh, that's sweet. 
Oh, that's sweet. Like Valentine's Day in the Bible. It is the actual nature of our divine God. That is the kind of compassion he has on his people. Now we're about to take our next one. Yeah. And it's significantly different. Oh, wow. So remember, as we take the next slide, Adonai is not one quality at a time. He is the embodiment of all virtue at all times. So aspects of his character may be more strongly expressed at times, but God remains who he is in his complete and perfect harmony with himself, regardless of which righteous expression is manifested in a moment to his people. Amen. Next slide. Wrath as embodied in God. This is from Deuteronomy 28, 63. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good. Somebody say delight. Delight, delight in doing you good. Hallelujah. And multiplying you. Amen. So the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you. In destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Now... Just in case you're wondering if it's a translational issue. The word delight means to take a high degree of pleasure. Or Pastor Matthew, pleasure. Or mental satisfaction. According to the Lexham analytical lexicon. So let's be frank here. A sober depth chart of the believers in this room would not indicate that any substantial portion of you were aware that God takes a high degree of pleasure and mental satisfaction in destroying the rebellious. If you don't believe me, consider how you responded the last time a lost relative died or you heard a friend's lost relative died. Words like, I'm so sorry, or that's sad, do not accurately reflect Adonai's high degree of pleasure or mental satisfaction with the death and destruction of those who choose to be rebellious. So as we said before, the tendency of men is to project onto God their own thoughts and own feelings. You can see that both in the compassion that exists in God and in the wrath. We choose to make him into an image that is comfortable for us. Now, when you're considering this, this tendency is done day after day in believing communities to our own peril. This is not a problem the lost have. They disregard him altogether. The most shocking part of this passage is that the same God who is compassionate also takes great pleasure in the perfect expression of his divine wrath upon the rebellious of mankind. He is altogether virtuous, altogether good, and upright. He is the definition of what is right, and he embodies these qualities at all times without exception. Like Pastor Judah said, the most shocking part of that passage is that God is able to embody both compassion and perfect wrath at the same time. When you're considering those omnipotent qualities of God that exist fully at all times, you have to come to the conclusion and think about your own capacity to display the perfect image of God. Yep. 
We have a limited capacity to show compassion and wrath. We in the natural tend to only display one or the other at a time. So we begin to view God as only compassionate or only merciful. When he is in fact both at all times in every situation. You see, through projecting our views of what is good unto God, which is anthropomorphic, yes. rather than viewing God as the author of what is good, which is theomorphic, we begin to reshape God in our own minds into our image. This is in effect creating a God of our own making rather than the God of the Bible. To plainly state what that is. Come on now. Do you like it when things are plainly stated? Yeah. I do. To plainly state what that is, it is the literal definition of idolatry. Which is worshiping a God of our own creation. To project onto him our thoughts in a situation, our emotions in a situation, whether fearful, prideful, whatever you call it, and then to be believe that this is actually what God is like, and then walk acting that way that God is like this, is the definition of idolatry. It is worshiping, believing, acting in the manner of a God of your own creation. It is our own image of what is good. And it is not worshiping and imaging God as he truly is. We have a divine call to image God in all of his glory. This requires that we begin to view what is good in our thoughts and practice as what God himself embodies as good. This is true of all God's people. It's true for the men in the room. It's true for the women and even the children within our God-given functions. When you hear preaching about aspects of Adonai's character, like his divine qualities as a shepherd and as a warrior, you really need to remember that what is being preached on are aspects of the qualities of the divine nature that we are called to image. To be able to fully image God, well, this requires that we throw away our own anthropomorphic view of who God is and begin to search for the truth of who he is as displayed in his word. We are called to image him as he is yes. in a theomorphic view of God. As our time in Psalm 73 clearly showed us the destructive result of meditating on wickedness. Yep. Asaph. Though he was an incredible man of God, even began to view God in an improper and anthropomorphic way. Because his mind was set on the things of the flesh. The Davidic Charter calls us to sing, to make music about the steadfast love yes. and justice of our God. Yes. The only way that we can truly image God is by absolute devotion to searching out the truth of his character as found in the word and setting our minds on that truth so that we might replicate it here on the earth. This requires a supernatural empowerment from Adonai. So 
Before we pray together, we're going to read Ephesians 1, 16 through 18 again and pray in accordance with what we read here. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Saints, in accordance with what Pastor Nick just read, we're going to pray. As we do, I want you to contemplate the past messages that you've received. It's not necessary to tell a man that it's okay and that he's called to be masculine unless we've spent hundreds and thousands of years of being anthropomorphic, throwing our own thoughts onto God and reshaping him in our image. The God of the Bible clearly displays that he is the image of what a man should be. And every man reading it, just looking at who God is, wanting to be like him, should be fully set free like a lion to imitate him. Saints, I'm looking at women of God in this room. The world that we currently live in, including the church world, is constantly at war with the divine image that God has given you in reflection of him. It is a holy, righteous image of God to be filled with compassion and desiring to raise godly offspring. It's not only not detracting from you, it is the very representation of how God feels about his people on earth and you're imaging him. We're going to pray that our eyes are opened so that we can get rid of the things that we've picked up along the way that were projections on God but are not actually who he is. Stand to your feet with us for a minute. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Lord, your word, it brings light to our very eyes. Lord, it is reviving to our soul. It causes us to see rightly and correctly. Lord, we're asking today, Lord, that what we read in your scripture would happen in this room. Lord, that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see you rightly. Lord, let a spirit of wisdom come inside of us. Wisdom that is from above to understand how to image you. Lord, that revelation would hit us today. Father, that a growing knowledge of you that results in becoming like you would mark us. Father, let your spirit breathe on us and revive us in this house. Saints, we're going to take a seat again and we're going to continue. As we do, I want you to continue to engage what you just heard from these men. We are going to learn to image God as he actually is. And now that we've properly engaged with our first passage from Ephesians 1. Amen. We can begin the rest of the message. The essential truth that has driven us personally to ever-increasing study, prayer, and repentance this week before God is that we are called to image him. There's a whole lot of another image still inside of us. Saints, it's not possible to really grasp, to grow in your understanding of the holiness of God and your responsibility to image him 
And it doesn't push you to cry out for a supernatural transformation. Adonai will open the eyes of our heart to understand how to reflect his character. But it will only come from searching the word with theomorphic eyes. We have been given a deposit, a good deposit, of the divine nature of God. That saints must produce its full return in us. In case you didn't know, the term effective yield is an investment term used to describe the exponential rate of growth that occurs when an investment begins to compound on itself over time. To give you an example, an investment of two pennies in a month that then becomes four pennies, then in another month becomes eight pennies, and then 16 pennies, so on and so forth. Well, that is an investment of two pennies all the way up to 16. It is an effective yield of 800%. You see, this is what the divine image of God is like inside of us. When we correctly image Adonai, we do not just incrementally grow from one penny to two pennies to three pennies. We double over in 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's there an is effective a great yield. effective yield. Adonai's investment in our lives is both a personal interaction and an everlasting interaction through his word. Jesus is the word made in flesh. And he is the one who has redeemed us from our empty way of life. Our engagement with the word has an effective yield as we learn to correctly image God in all of his divine attributes. To start, we want to start with you in the law of God. In Deuteronomy 5, 29. Verse 29 says, Oh! Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Sounds like generational wealth building. You see, the law of God was given to incline our hearts toward what is right as defined by God in his word. When we look at this passage with theomorphic eyes, we see that a deep longing for our hearts to be like God is his desire. His desire is for you to be theomorphic, to become like him. There is an effective yield from engaging in his character as his imagers. We begin to want what he wants when we do this. Then we are in increasing measure able to understand his character and represent him on the earth. The result of imaging his desire is that it goes well not only with you, but with your children forever. That's an effective yield. Let's take a look at another one from the prophets. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. That sounds like an effective yield is coming. Guys, from this passage, you can see that by imaging God, the effective yield, by imaging what is revealed through his word, will cause you not only to be successful today, but be successful in the future 
and be successful wherever you go. Wherever. Wherever you go. This is because the more like him you become, the more you continue to turn to him wherever you go. Oh, church, may we have a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation and knowledge regarding his character. This comes by never letting the law depart from your thoughts, your mouth, or your actions. The word of God is his character spelled out for you. The key to availing ourselves of this effective yield is removing our own anthropomorphic projections and looking at the word with resolute theomorphic eyes. That brings us to my favorite. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Praise God for that. Few passages in the word are as personally comforting as this verse, both on a personal level and in ministry. The word of God is Perfect, because it reflects the perfect one, the only one who is intrinsically good in and of himself. You're aware that Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Saints, the only way to do that is to be continually investing in the law by the medium of your thoughts, speech, and actions. This passage is, of course, in the writings. And the writings guide our strength by upholding the law of the Lord to the same level as God himself. Because they are one and the same. Jesus is the word made flesh. And Jesus is truth. Even if Pilate couldn't see it. It is our highest mandate to image what is displayed in the law of God above and beyond all other concerns in life. Look, we told you that today would be a journey. Designed to necessarily stretch you. All conforming to God involves necessary stretching. We promise. We are about to embark on the saga of two of the most influential men in the first century other than Jesus. Where we're going to start this saga is in Acts chapter 26. Turn with us, if you will, to Acts chapter 26 verse 15. And we're going to read through 18. Verse 15 says, Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now, get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to what? To open their eyes. Kind of like what he prayed for the Ephesian church. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's continual investment into the effective yield that is imaging God produced something in him that was exponential 
and compounding. Note here that his initial experience with the good deposit is preserved for our own benefit. We are reading his testimony of his first experience. And it's clear that Adonai not only made an impact on him, but Adonai forecasted the image of God in him and the image that would and must grow over time. Did you catch that? He said, I've appointed you as a witness of what you have seen. What is that? The last five minutes Jesus had been speaking to him at that moment. And what you will see of me. The Son of God is forecasting the image that Paul must grow into over time. What you're reading is Paul's recounting of the original deposit of God's image into him. This must have required Paul to reinvest into the image of God over time by engaging with the revealed character of God in his thoughts, speech, and deeds to bring about an effective yield. Paul knew from Jesus' statements, Paul knew that he must have a continuous, ongoing, daily revelation of his image continuously opening his own eyes so that Paul could actually open their eyes. Now Now I wonder why Paul wrote about his prayers in Ephesians 1, asking that the eyes of their hearts be opened. This was both his own physical experience going from being physically blind to seeing again, and this was his spiritual commissioning in the image of Adonai. So next, we are going to pick up in the midway point in Paul's saga. The midway point in Paul's journey of learning how to image God. The book of Romans, you can be turning to chapter 1. The book of Romans was written, written somewhere between Ephesus, where we just were, and Paul's arrival in Jerusalem during the events of Acts chapter 21. Romans 1.1 will begin with Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Come on. Guys, can you see Paul's revelation of the image of God growing in Romans chapter 1? You know, Paul wrote 13 works in total, but only two of those 13 works begin in this way, begin the address with what Paul was commissioned for. He says here, called or commissioned to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That is why he received his commission. A great deal of the image of Christ has been worked into him up to this point. Oh, but somebody say, there is a lot to go. There's a lot to go. There was a lot on Paul's journey that he still had left to image the Lord correctly. 
He still had Jerusalem in front of him. He still had all the trials and journey all the way to Rome in front of him. There's a lot of imaging and learning yet to go. But Paul writes about what has formed him into the image of God. And he also writes about what will form the Romans into the image of God just like it's done for him. All right, somebody tell me what the title of today's message is. An effective yield. You saw in Acts 26 that when Jesus spoke to Paul, he had a measure of the divine nature that impacted him. And Jesus told him that you will have to testify of what else you also see of me. An effective yield was forecasted. Yep. Romans was written between the work at Ephesus and the Acts 21 event in Jerusalem. And he writes about seven things that he was redeemed, commissioned, made into the image of God for. Yep. And I'm going to tell you in advance, they all relate to the word of God. So let's take a look at this slide and see the effective yield from Paul's initial transformation to the time of Romans. Yeah. The gospel of God for which was promised beforehand in the scriptures. Something of the word of God, which is the image of God, is being worked into Paul, and it's what he leads with. For the son of David, according to what was promised. Saints, where are those promises contained? In the, in the word and the scripture of God. That is why he was made into his image, to testify to this. That he is the son of God, as evidenced by resurrection and an indestructible life. Can you see? The image of God is working into him. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Saints, this is a statement of him being the head, the deity, the one who sits in the Father's image, through whom we have grace and apostleship, i.e. power over sin and righteous works. Six, to bring about obedience from faith, just as was promised to Abraham. For the sake of his name or body of works among the nations. Saints, a great deal of the image of Christ has been worked into Paul. And like Nick said, there is so much more to go. He's not even arrived at Jerusalem yet. But his experience with the Almighty God, imaging him, has caused him to write seven things about his life that are dedicated to what the word declares. And better yet... When he doesn't know exactly what his course of life is going to look like. Treaster, he knows that there are trials ahead of him. He wants to write. And he writes to them about the seven things that transformed him. So that it might transform the Romans in the same way that it did him. Can we say this is an effective yield in a man's life? This is the compounding effect of what it looks like to image God. It's like all of a sudden you understand the smallest building block of a math problem. And then you can start to learn it. But you have to start with throwing away your own anthropomorphic projections onto God and imaging him as he is. Look, we're going to continue to speed up the pace because we have good things to get to. But after we have appropriately brought the weight on everybody in the room of the need to conform to God in all of his fullness... Isn't it a bit comforting to see this ongoing process in Paul's life? Yes. It's comforting to see that he knew in his initial experience of God that there would be more to be had. And then at this moment in his life, 
where he is heading into absolute difficulty, bound by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, knowing that persecutions await. He has an increasing revelation of the seven things that are forming him and the seven things he is going to be formed in further. He says, I am called and set apart to be an apostle for these things. Church, that's comforting because that's where we are at. Knowing where we are going as a body, heading into more difficulties and trials, and yet growing in our awareness of the image of God that is being formed in us and will further be formed in us. This is the station that Paul is in. Now, as we mentioned before, there are two works that Paul states what he was called into the image of God for. This one that we're about to read is much later in his life. In the 60s, around the time of 1 Timothy, you will notice a marked difference as Christ's image has been formed into Paul. An effective yield has produced in him the sacrificial quality of Christ. This is evidenced in what he says he was called into the image of Christ for in Titus 1, 1 through 4. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Listen up closely. Paul a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So not called to be, he says, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Treaster, would you read that one more time? For the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, yeah. promised before the ages began Good. and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, Woo. grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. What you're reading about is Paul, after having reinvested many times over into the image of Christ by walking the path of the crucified Messiah, Paul now writes as a present tense imager of Christ that he is an apostle for the faith of the elect, for the sake of them, for their faith. You see, the first seven aspects that we covered in Romans 1 centered on the foundational aspects of the word that were, that were producing an effective yield of the image of Christ in him and would also produce an effective yield in the Romans. Now in Titus, Paul, in a more full image of Christ, yeah. is writing to Titus about his purpose for being for them. Because he has taken on the image of Christ, which is for them. Church, this is Paul arriving at the full portrayal of Christ in his own life. Isn't that exciting to anybody? Paul is not some kind of superhero Christian that we cannot attain to. He is writing about arriving at the full portrayal of Christ. You know what that means for you and I? We're going to arrive too. 
We are on this journey together, and we can have faith and comfort in the fact that we will arrive if we reinvest into the image of God. We will arrive at the same place where we are an image of God for them. Now let's look at the seven things he says that he was set apart as an apostle for. Because they are the evidence they are the evidence of a real effective yield in the image of Christ. Titus 1, 1 through 4 on our next slide. Look at this evidence of Paul's effective yield. Number one, the faith of God's elect. These are the things he's set apart for. Number two, their knowledge of the truth. Number three, in accordance with godliness or their practice of the truth. Number four, the hope of eternal life. The hope of their resurrection and glorification together with him. Number five, the God who never lies. You think he's getting revelation after revelation of God's image? Number six, it was promised beforehand. And number seven, the manifestation, the visual of his word through Paul's preaching and theirs. Paul finished the record in Acts in a home rented at his own expense. And he, what was he doing while he was there? He was equipping all of those who came to him for their imaging of God Almighty. We're going to keep moving, but I want you to have those seven in mind. You will know that you're producing an effective yield in the image of Christ when your life ceases to be your own and your life is about those that are around you. Even your preaching is simply to manifest the image of God's word to make it easier for someone else to imitate it. Saints, real teachers, real preachers, those who have a divine calling do not speak because they want to be heard. They speak because they see the need and know why they were put on the earth. Our next slide will show you the effective yield in Paul during his time of trial and journey toward the end of his life. Let's take that next slide, please. So the first seven are Paul's application from the word that we found in Romans 1. It's what was produced in him and in his hearers through foundational teaching and application of the word. The second seven are the effective yield of devotion in theomorphic engagement with the word of God. Paul began to emulate what Christ did with the disciples and lay his life down for them. Now we're going to read the right side. You see, it's entitled Supported Their Work. Each of these references are the time from Paul going from Jerusalem to Rome and what he spent the rest of his life doing was making arrangements for other ministers. For writing letters of recommendation so that they would be well received and have an opportunity to share the gospel. Doing what it took to make sure when they arrived somewhere they were provided for. Titus 3, Timothy 4, Ephesians 6, Colossians 4, and Philemon 8 among others. We encourage you to read these in your own time. It will give you an example of what it looks like to have the effective yield of the image of Christ inside of you. To say the least, the image of God was formed in Paul like a deposit that was small in the beginning. I mean, a five-minute encounter, as amazing as that is, 
but it had an effective yield in his life that became like Christ through reinvesting time and time again. His life was now about the effective yield, not in himself, but in the effective yield in those that were around him. It's no wonder that Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Saints, those words are alive in the man's soul. They're not just written on a page. Paul finished his life as a sacrifice and reflection of Christ who did it before him. Ephesians 5 goes on to explain how to image God, whether you are a husband, a wife, a slave, a child, in all walks of life. The point is that you're an imitator of God imaging Christ in your function. Ephesians 5. It's not something that we have time to go over today. But again, married men, I suggest that you go over it. That you go over the teachings that are before you because it will show you how to arrange your household to be a reflection of the Almighty. Somebody say the best for last. That brings us to the saga of the apostle Peter. So we're going to switch over to another saga that is happening concurrently with Paul's saga. We're going to start in the beginning for Peter. And this is Matthew 16, verse 15. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man. This was not an anthropomorphic vision, Peter. But by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, Kepha, the rock. And on this rock of revelation, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What you are reading is the original deposit of revelation into Peter of who the Messiah was. The initial shot of theomorphic revelation. The revelation was accompanied by the statement that this revelation was the rock that the entire group of God's called out ones would be built on. Peter must have understood in that moment that he was being set apart for the building up of that church And to do that, he had to continually reinvest himself into the revelation that came only from heaven. So that he could enter into the apostolic calling of building a church that imaged the God of heaven. You have to understand that Jesus called and appointed Peter an apostle. But this was his commissioning in how to become an apostle. Peter's struggles in discipleship. With anthropomorphic thoughts, projecting his desires onto God time and time again. No, Lord, that'll never happen to you. Well, they follow the verses that we just read. Just a little further down. But Peter, however, learned what it was to be theomorphic. Come on, that's good news. He learned 
through continual trial and failure what it was to be theomorphic through his continual attempts to persevere despite his own self-directed failings. Peter walked the path or journey of the crucified Messiah by daily engaging with the word in his thoughts, speech, and actions until he arrived at a place where he imaged the sacrifice of God physically on earth. For everyone in this room, man, woman, or child, the process of producing an effective yield in Peter's life is among the best of examples that you could possibly fix your mind on. Because you could see cl so clearly where he gets it wrong, but never fails to get it right. Look, we're about to pick up at a time late in the process of effective yield in Peter's life. Very late. You could say towards the end of Peter's saga, where the image of Christ shined so brightly through him that he gave us lasting instructions on how to rise to the image of Christ together. Oh, let's look at those lasting instructions in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at the beginning of the book. Come on. Effective yield as you're turning there, church. ESV says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, consider for a moment what Peter is actually saying in his letter. A faith of equal standing with whose? Ours. Who is that ours? That's the 12 original Jewish apostles here. And he's writing and saying, you have obtained a faith that is equal to our faith. Guys, wow. this is incredible. Wow. The, fa the 12 foundational apostles who walked with Christ... They transferred and helped to raise up men where that same impact and image was being produced in their lives, guys. This is what a more full image of Adonai in us produces and is evidenced by. Producing a faith that is equal to the original. This foundational attribute is the basis for which every other quality present in our lives and teams must flow. Somebody say effective yield. effective yield. As we go through these coming verses, fix in your mind that Peter addresses them in advance and says that you have a faith equal to us who walked with the divine physically. Verse 2 says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. And of Jesus our Lord. Get out of your mind. The concept of an awareness of God. Or a data dump about God. Informational purposes. The knowledge. Peter is saying may you know him. May you know the father. May you know the son. May you know God. So that you can become like him. Because in your growing knowledge of him. In a multiplied fashion, righteousness, power over sin, and shalom will be exhibited in your life. Let's take verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and 
godliness, godlikeness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Church, godliness is a quaint Christian term in today's vernacular. It's been robbed of its meaning. Oh, she, she knits quilts. She, she's sweet. She's so godly. So godly. What godly means is God-likeness in all of its fullness of the expression. Yeah. Again, how? Through the knowledge of Him. Through knowing Him. But how do you do that? How do you know Him? You do it by engaging with His character as preserved in His Word. In your thoughts, speech, and actions. This is a whole lot less of just reading the Bible to finish a plan. And more of engaging with his character. And realizing you are not his character. But you need it in a raw shot of theomorphism in your bones. Church, do you know him? How well do you know him this week? How well do you know him today? How much of his glory and excellence is exhibited in your image of him. See, these questions have driven us to the word, prayer, and severe crying out in repentance. Yes. Just this week, God, I don't have the answers around me. I'm tempted to use my own logic. I'm tempted to relate to my own experience and how things have worked in the past. I need your image in me. Verse 4. By which he has granted to us by which he has granted granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you which is a plural you by the way may become partakers of the divine nature you may become partakers in the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Church, what a hope that has been granted to us Come today. On. That we may be in Christ. That we may be in Him all in whole. That we may be in Him through and through partakers in His very divine nature. Oh, it's time to avail ourselves of this by stripping away every single anthropomorphic view of God's character and beginning to examine his word with a theomorphic intention of it showing up in all areas of our life, in our thoughts, in our speech, in our actions, in every area of our being. Saints, are you beginning to understand why passages like Psalm 73 portray the death that you experience when you're meditating on something other than the glory of God? Yes. And why the Davidic Charter, a man who was flawed but was the prototype of Christ, says that I will sing of the steadfast love of God. Amen. I will make music according to him. Since we've been granted the opportunity to partake in his divine nature. Amen. And again, Nick said it. This is plural. This is not about you individually being allowed to partake in his divine nature. This is about us collectively participating in his divine nature and imaging him on the earth as his one body with him head over all. That in mind, verse 5 says, For 
this very reason. For the reason of the glory that has been granted to us. That we have the opportunity to participate in the divine. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Which is where he began. With virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godlikeness. Or godliness. And godliness, hear this, with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Meaning, since we have been given the ability to stand in a faith of equal standing with the original apostles, we can and we will grow in a more glorious and excellent representation of his image together. Our imaging of God cannot be done apart from our spouse is. You are one flesh under heaven. The smallest divisible unit in the Bible is not an individual person, but a household. Come on now. And you cannot do this without the body of Messiah. That he is the head of through and through or all in all. We are participating in his divine nature together. And we will make every effort together to supplement our existing faith with constantly increasing attributes of Christ and do it together. We've begun this journey, but the process to produce an effective yield requires us to eliminate every anthropomorphic view of God. We have an advantage though. We have an advantage in that we are not doing this alone. We can see each other's engagement with the word and thoughts, speech and deeds and man, it allows us to pick up the strengths and successes of one another. That is like God. I can do that too. Furthermore, we will help each other eliminate many of our individual weaknesses that stem from a lack of theomorphic devotion to the omnipotent character of God as represented in his word. We are, somebody say we are. We are, we are growing to become more like Christ day after day. Because we are growing together as we pursue his word above and beyond all else and any other pursuit. This and that is what will be an effective yield in this house. So let's take a look at a slide regarding the seven attributes of God that Peter says to have increasing measure. This is what it means to be fruitful and have effective imaging of God. Number one is virtue. This is the moral excellence, the strength, and the courage to do good to others. The second is the knowledge. In Peter's context, this is the knowledge of his will and who he is. The third is self-control. In the context of Peter's letter, this refers to having brought yourself under the control of his will and his spirit. His will and his spirit. Amen. Fourth, steadfastness. In the context of Peter's letter, this refers to the ability to endure in virtue, to endure in knowledge, and to endure in self-control while in a hostile environment. The fifth attribute that we add consistently is godliness. In Peter's letter, this refers to being so holy devoted to the attributes of Adonai that you are imitating his behavior. Sixth is the brotherly affection. This refers to having divinely inspired familial, sacrificial, 
or loving actions towards the body of Christ. And seventh is love. In context, this refers to having selfless, sacrificial, or loving actions towards all men because of the foundational faith that Adonai has given you as you participate in the divine nature. You see, Peter knew what it takes to produce an effective yield. His journey produced in him the image of Adonai, and that image drove him to fight for the image of God in his brothers and the body of Christ. This is what it looks like to be formed into the image of Christ. You will know that the image of Christ is being fully formed in you when you know what you are on the earth for. What you have been set apart for. And that is their benefit and your life in thought, speech, and deed. It is truly no longer your own. It is for them. These seven qualities listed by a man who walked with the divine should be something that you set your life to excelling in. Man, women, or child, this is what it looks like for you to be godly or godlike. This is how real men and real women behave, wholly submitted to the will of God. With that in mind, let's move to verse 8 in Peter's address. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Never. Never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Guys, we are looking forward to a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom for every single one of you here in this place. This comes through an effective yield, which is what we are presenting to you this morning. The only way to have this effective yield is to throw away your own anthropomorphic view of God and to actually go after imaging him as he ought to be imaged and to do so in an increasing measure. But if you do this, you can be certain that you will never fall. If you do this, you can be certain of the reward that awaits you. But if you do not, well, we're going to let you contemplate the text in the next verses yourself. I'm pausing for a minute on purpose. The next verses are going to tell you what station in life Peter is in. But remember, he's writing these words to men whom he says and knows have equal faith to the original 12 apostles. Verse 12 says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Another way you could say that is these divine attributes of God. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. 
since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter has journeyed in the process of producing an effective yield. That is, imaging Christ. The recipients of his letter knew these things. But needed to know him. They needed to know him well enough for that image to endure under duress and after Peter's departure. Can I suggest to you today... That if this group had equal faith with the 12 apostles, needed to confirm their election and calling, then so do we today. We're going to finish our reading in Peter with verse 19. Now we preached ourselves hoarse, so you're going to have to listen intently. I promise we're not yelling, this is just how we talk. Especially when we're talking about the image of God, because... That's the most passionate thing that we can ever engage in. In verse 19, Peter continues this thought by wrapping up with, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention Come on. as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, Peter has described the words of the potential yield in the lives of his brothers as a prophetic word that at his present time of writing had been more fully confirmed, but had not yet been brought to its fullest state of perfection or completion in any regard. As we come to our closing this morning, we want to tell you, that the word that you have just received must be received in the same way. This is being confirmed in your life in a, in a more increasing way. But it has not reached its perfect state yet. You have received the original deposit of who Adonai is. And you have begun to understand the beginning of how his character functions in all of its glory. That understanding of Adonai's character must, must, must continue to grow as you, looked, as you look into the perfect law and persevere through duress, persevere through your road to Jerusalem and Rome to put his character into practice in a more complete way. Church, we read Joshua 1.8 earlier in this sermon. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. You shall chew on it. You shall speak of it all the days of your life. We read this scripture early on for a myriad of reasons. But the one that you must grasp now is that Adonai was speaking this to Joshua in the very first chapter of the book of Joshua. Before he and the entire nation of Israel went on their war campaigns. The Lord knew that Joshua and the people desperately needed this direction. 
He knew that they must image him to a greater and greater degree in those future days of battle and struggle and duress. And our prophetic word for you is that God is now bringing this revelation to the forefront of this congregation because of the theater of war that lies directly ahead of us. There is a necessity for your heightened resolve in imaging our king. Because there is a great campaign that is right at our doorstep. And you need to act like him to a greater and greater degree for what is coming in the days ahead. God desires to produce something in you that is exponential and that is compounding. Your initial experience with the good deposit, it is miraculous. It does serve as a valid initial testimony. But this first experience is meant to forecast the future that he has for you. One that must inspire you toward the image of God that will and must grow over time. This requires you to reinvest into his image in repeating fashion by engaging with the revealed character of God in your thoughts, in your speech, and in your deeds to bring about the effective yield that he desires from you and from us. How you see God affects every other action in your life, including your view of a godlike or godly man or woman, as well as your view of God. It's still incomplete because your view is largely anthropomorphic. And it must become increasingly more theomorphic. Imaging him as you must. You must have a continuous revelation of him. Crucifying your idolatrous views and continuously opening up your eyes. So that you can open the eyes of others to this revelation. Saints, can I tell you that as a pastoral and elder team, we feel a spiritual tension. This ministry has a fantastic, consistent track record. We went through the book of Jeremiah. We had no idea how prophetic going through the book of Jeremiah would be. We entered into the book of Acts knowing that it would be a call to action for us. To put it in a household colloquialism, Gabe, we don't drink tonight because something is going to happen in the morning. We're on the edge of combat that we can all feel. We've watched beloved brothers harried by demonic thoughts and desires. We've watched our households in a good God-given way be strained under more pressure than we've ever held. This is because our God knows what is on the other side of this campaign, and we're in Joshua 1. Today is the day to recognize that both as men and women of God, we must grow in our character of God. If you got nothing else out of this message, then at the very least, get rid of your projections on God and start seeking out the true image of God, and that will lead you into the rest. We are demanding the removal of anthropomorphic thoughts about God and the representation of God because God himself demands it. His omnipotent character is worth being imaged correctly in his people, not as we see God or want him to be.
let me ask you, as you're sitting here in this room, knowing that these epistles are addressed to men and women who have an equal faith with the 12 apostles, do you feel yourself exempt? Are you unable to find the areas that you've created an idol, calling it God by imaging him as you want him to be? Let me ask you about the areas of your thoughts about what is godly that were shaped by a circus church or what your Sunday school told you. That you've carried for decades and are shocked to hear that God takes pleasure in killing the rebellious. Or that God is compassionate to the extent where it could be used to describe the aspects of a woman. Our God is complex in depth. He is both wholly compassionate and wholly wrathful. And we have worked for thousands of years to simplify him down into an easy little box. No wonder our men and women fit into an easy little cookie cutter box. Saints, we need to go beyond the cookie cutter. We need to go beyond chocolate soldiers. We need to know what it is to be men and women who are in the image of Christ. Because this world needs it and we're on the edge of more difficult days, not easier. So let me ask you, spouses, in your actions and your thoughts, have you been demonstrating an anthropomorphic image of God or a theomorphic image of God? I'm going to ask the men first. Does your life actually look like Ephesians 5, where you're giving yourself up from the time that you wake to the time that you sleep for your wife as Christ does the church? Husbands, we have a fine way of justifying our own personal preferences and making it God's will. You are the absolute authority in your home, and that is not controvertible in Scripture. You have a divine obligation to be an authority that is like God and not in the image of a sinful man. If it's been six months since you have thoroughly gone through the marriage material with your wife working to put it into practice... Then it is time for repentance because the effects are on your household and your children. Wife, you know that you have a divine calling to submit and respect. But are you projecting your own fears onto your children and onto your husband because you see God in a way that is not accurate? Listen to me, saints. Much of the confusion, of the anxiety... Of the wrathful moments in this room. That plague a week that we wish we were free from. That show up in your mushlomka again and again. Including my own. Because we have conformed the image of God to be what we want it to be. And it's not until his spirit convicts us afterward. That we realize it was wrong. We must take up a Psalm 101. An Exodus 15 mindset. Where we are imitating and viewing God in light of every action that we take. Like we said earlier, this message has brought us to tears, brought us to repentance. I've been reflecting on these lion cubs that I have on the front row. Titus, Benaiah, Yoshev, and Jehu, they are my pride and my crown. But the number of areas... But I have a stupid rule that is just based upon my annoyance or preference and is not actually an image of God. Is unhelpful. 
It's my job to enforce the standards of God. Not a man's fickleness. The area is that we fail to enforce God's standards through laxity. Saints, that is a representation, an anthropomorphic view of how you view God. When you're lax in disciplining your children, it's because you view God as laxed. When your discipline in your children becomes nabalistic wrath. When it is not disciplined for their betterment and understanding and success, it is an expression of your inability to control your own temper. Whether it's through a wife getting exasperated or a husband who's frustrated that he has to address something again. You are imaging something that is not theomorphic, that is anthropomorphic. You're telling them God flies off the handle. Saints, it's time for sobriety. We can neither be effeminate in the dealings with our households, nor can we be wrathful individuals that do not exhibit God's wrath. He is altogether merciful and wrathful at the same time in appropriate proportions. When you consider what an awesome task as the people of God we have been given to represent him to the world, what care ought that put inside of us to ensure our eyes are fixed on his image so that we represent him well? I don't believe we're going to take the time to talk about your team interactions. Because I think if you get it right in your household, you'll get it right in your teams. And if you meditate on what we've said about your household, about your personal imaging of God, whether it's anthropomorphic or theomorphic, then your imaging in the teams will get right as well. Church, the truth is, the more you stare into the brilliant and radiant light of what his image is, you realize how idolatrous and anthropomorphic you really are. You realize how many idolatrous thoughts that you have cast upon God and what he accepts or does not accept. And that idolatrous casting of thought upon him shows up in every one of our actions. As you're sitting here and you're listening to Pastor Judah and Pastor Matt's going to close us out, we urge you to search your heart and ask God to do the only thing that he can do. Show you the areas of idolatrous anthropomorphism that you've been acting in. We're going to do the same with you as we continue. As these truths are settling on your soul, I want to do something. Number one, I want to propel you into his presence. That's my purpose. You'll like it. It'll be fun. Remind me again, what's the title of today's message? Effective Yield. As I'm listening to these men preach the truth of God, Reflecting the image of God and giving you his word that will do the same for you. One particular thing began to stand out. And that is the question, do you know him? I mean, really. Do you know the face and image of your God? You have to wrestle with that. I don't care how many years that you have been born again, serving the Lord, doing external righteous deeds. 
Because we also couple that with a question, have you discovered all there is to know about him? No. Oh, there's so much more. I'll tell you where I do not want to be. I do not want to be in the category of those that Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 7. When he says, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord. Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I heal in your name? And he will say to those, away from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. And that word no is the same intimate language like a husband knows a wife and therefore a wife knows a husband. So I ask you again, wrestle on the inside. Do you know him? More importantly, does he know you? Can he recognize his image at work and displayed inside of you? I'm not talking about the image that you show to pastors and elders when you show up at a meeting. And by the way, by the grace of God, he helps us see right past that mask. Because he shows us what you need. And that's why we live the way that we live in front of you. And therefore, that's why we preach the way that we preach. You know, I cannot help but reflect on John 15. The ever-narrowing days of Jesus' life on earth. And he makes the point of this message very clear and succinct. When he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And particularly in verse 5, he says, if you remain in me, and I in you. Meaning that if you become theomorphic, and my image is inside of you, you will bear much fruit. That much fruit is not just a quantitative measure of fruit. It is also a qualitative measure. Ever increasing fruitfulness and better fruit each time that there's a yield and a harvest. Now, in a very encouraging way, look at your life now. For those of you who have been solid and faithful members of this church that we know your face so well. A sobering look at your own life will determine, is the fruit that I'm bearing now all in greater quantity and quality that reflects the image of my God? Reflect on that. Weigh and measure your hearts before the presence of God. And this is what will begin to happen. Just like when the ark of God came into proximity of the Philistine god of Dagon. Is that those idolatrous images that oppose God's image. Will be found to be on their face with their arms and head broken off. When you draw near to God's presence, it is designed to crush idolatrous images that you have made and called it God, but it is not. These men read from 2 Peter, and as we have studied this morning and last Sunday, Peter was a man who encountered a lot of force 
to be shaped into God's image. The removal of what he added or what he denied of God's image and took on his own. In fact, the following two verses where these men concluded this morning in 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 20, says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone or man's own interpretation or man's own designing of who God is. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they were carried along by the image of God being manifested by the power of God. What he did inside of you that first great and glorious day that you were born again is that he put his divine image inside of you. He did that by his word and his spirit confronting the idolatry of self and conformity with this world. He resurrected you. He stood you to your feet. He took you out of your muck and your mire and all of the consequences from the strength of your own right arm. And he seeks to do something with it well beyond that one point. He wants to multiply his image. He wants to increase his image. Long gone are the days when we have settled into a comfortable place of divinity and say that we must do no more from this point forward. That, saints, is the day that we die and not physically. That is the day that we cease to be fruitful. Last passage, Hebrews 12, 1. This sums it all up. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I'm going to pause there. Usually we say within this context, those that encompass the great cloud of witnesses are the heroes of our faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the men of God that we have seen. But ladies, you know who else is there? Sarah. You know who else is there? Rachel. All the great women that have been displayed through God's word that took up the mantle of God's image, reflected the authorities over them, and equally with bravery did the will of God. Oh, how can we not think of J.L.? That's one brave woman. In light of those that surround us in the heavenly realms that have displayed the image of God and now stand in the full presence of God. Let us throw off everything that hinders. It relates to this message this morning and for the rest of our lives. Let's throw off every anthropomorphic image that we have assigned to God's image. Because it hinders. And there's a connection in this passage as it goes on. And the sin that so easily entangles. You want to know why there's a repetition of sin in your life? It's because you have not cast off everything that hinders. That conformity of God's image into what you want it to be. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author or pioneer and perfecter of faith. 
What's happening this morning is that you're being confronted with the truth of God and with his presence and thereby his image. And it's for the purpose of pioneering a new and greater walk inside of you. It is for the purpose of perfecting the walk that you currently possess. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That model is also for you. That model for you is to see the joy before you to go to the crucifixion of your own image. It's not a burden. It's a liberation. It's a freedom. It's what's been hindering you for year after year after year. And today is the day that it can die. Today is the day that you can run to that cross and find the joy of dying to what has been killing you this entire time. In fact, you can go on and reflect the image of God in his son by scorning the shame of acknowledgement of its existence. The more that you shield, the more that you put fig leaves over the problems that are killing you, the more that you require the truth of God's word to sever and cut right through them. So why not just cast it all off and be vulnerable and transparent before your God and before your family? And the end result is the same as well. That we get to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Not just in the ages to come, but that is here and right now. That wherever your feet are placed, they are placed on earth as God's ambassador. And therefore carry the weight of his authority. That by his word in your mouth, you can challenge the heavenly realms. You can stand toe to toe as a embodiment of his presence and counsel with the very archonic spiritual powers that have dominated millions for thousands of years. So right here, right now, if you are honest and wrestling with your own practice in life about conforming the image of God into what you have wanted to be, or you just see the effects and you don't know exactly where it's at. I ask that right now, worship team, come up. Rise to your feet if that is you and that's what you want. And joyfully come to this altar and see that image of man put to death so that the image of God can rise. Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, that you have given us freedom and access to know you. Lord, we repent of our evil and wicked deeds of just trying to change your image into what we desire to be. But we say transform our hearts, transform our lives again now. Help us know you. Know you face to face. Lord, may our lives resurrect and stand to the feet that display purely who you are in all deeds and at all times.